Revelation chapter 15, if you want to turn there, and there's an outline on the back of your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits. You can grab one now or later if you'd like. And um, those are on the church website as well. Had an email this week from a man in Port or in Brazil, I assume it was, but it was in Portuguese, <laughs> writing to me. And uh, Google's got a handy little translator. You just click translate, and bingo, it's in sort of English I could understand. So it's a marvelous tool. We are in verses 12 to 17 of John chapter 15, and Jesus is still in the upper room the night before he is. Uh, to be crucified. And he says to the eleven, Judas has gone out, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love is no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Friends are an important and wonderful part of life, as you know. And I never have forgotten something that uh, Professor Howard Hendricks told us my fourth year in seminary. He said, men, there are two things that will influence where you're at 10 years out of seminary. The books you read and the friends you make. And then after a pregnant pause, he said, choose them both very carefully. Books and friends. Of course, that was long before Facebook, where now you can befriend your local grocery store and everything in between. But uh, still, the point stands, friends are important. And the most important friend that you can have by far is the Lord Jesus There are a lot of hymns that celebrate the friendship we have with Christ. What a friend we have in Jesus. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. I've found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. Or I've found a friend who is all to me. His love is ever true. Or another one, there's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. D.A. Carson, in a book on the Farewell Discourse and in his um, commentary as well, warns us, though. He says we need to be careful about being too chummy with calling Jesus our friend. And he points out that in the Bible, God calls several people and Jesus his friends. But there's no case of anyone calling God or Jesus my friend. And that 
regard from our end. Uh, so what he's pointing out is it's not a totally mutual, reciprocal, buddy-buddy friendship that we're talking about. Uh, the Bible, for example, calls both Abraham and Moses uh, friends of God. And here Jesus calls the disciples his friends, but at the same time, he's still their Lord and Master. We saw that in chapter 13. And even though here at the Last Supper, John was leaning back with his head on Jesus' chest, in the book of Revelation, when he got that vision of Jesus in his glory, he didn't say, hey, friend, how you doing, buddy? He fell at his feet as a dead man. And I think we need to maintain that reverence that John had as we explore the question. But the question I would like you to think about this morning is, would Jesus call me his friend? And our text reveals four characteristics of those whom Jesus calls his friends so we can check ourselves out by them. First of all, friends of Jesus love one another. Secondly, friends of Jesus obey his commandments. Third, they understand his truths. And then finally, they are chosen to bear fruit that remains. Now, before we look at these characteristics, I need to make it clear because I don't know where you're all at. But I think there are probably a lot of people who just assume, well, Jesus is friends with everybody, isn't he? I mean, He's a good person, and I'm a good person, and so, yeah, good people kind of have a friendship. And if you're thinking anything close to that, that you're a friend of Jesus because you're a good person, you need to understand that the Bible teaches something different. The Bible teaches that by nature, all of us are enemies of God. We are hostile toward God. We cannot... Uh, love God and love the things of God. We are opposed to all that is in the Bible because God is holy and we are sinful. And we saw in John chapter 3, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and they don't even want to come to the light. They hate the light because it exposes their sin. And the bad news is this. You cannot pick a worse enemy to have than God. Because God always wins. He always wins. So you want to become a friend of God. And that's what our text is all about. And the good news is that God sent Jesus, his eternal son, to reconcile sinners to the holy God. In Jesus' day, there was a crowd who thought they were good enough to be God's friends. They were the self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees, the Uh, religious leaders in Israel, and they scoffed at Jesus, and they derogatorily called him, he's the friend of sinners. And rather than saying, oh, no, God forbid, Jesus accepted that and reveled in it and said, yes, I didn't come to call the righteous. And in that context, he means all you self-righteous prudes. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the great news of the Bible is to be reconciled to God, all you've got to do is accept that designation. I am a sinner and I cannot save myself. And God sent his own son to bear the penalty that I deserve. And if I believe in him, I can be reconciled to God, as we sang in one of the songs. Uh, 
No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so the first step in being called the friend of Jesus is to come to the cross. And the cross is all about God reconciling sinners to himself freely by his grace. And everyone can come because, as the Apostle Paul said, I'm first. I'm the biggest sinner that ever was. And he found mercy. And so the offer of salvation is open to every sinner who will come to Jesus. That's the good news about starting a friendship with him. Then once you've done that, you can consider these four characteristics that we're going to explore here this morning. And the first one, which serves as bookends on our text, it's at the start, it's at the finish, is that friends of Jesus love one another just as Jesus loved us. Notice verses 12 and 13. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Then he expands on that by saying, Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And then when you get to the end of the paragraph there in verse 17, he repeats it. This I command you, that you love one another. Now, if those commands sound vaguely familiar and you've been tracking with us in the Gospel of John, it's because they are familiar In fact, earlier on the same evening in John chapter 13, uh, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And you have to ask yourself, uh, why would Jesus repeat the same commandment twice On the same evening, I think we can assume he was not senile, where, you know, as you get older, sometimes you repeat stories you forgot you just told. Uh, No, not at all. Rather, Jesus was the master teacher, and he knew that repetition is the key to learning. You don't learn something first time through. It's kind of like hammering a nail. Unless you're a master carpenter, you can't sink a nail in one blow. It takes several blows to get that nail in. And in the same way, it takes repetition to get a major lesson in. And to learn to love one another takes repeated exhortation. Repeated exhortation. Uh, Luke tells us that during the Last Supper, the events that John doesn't report the Last Supper, but he gives us all this other info about being in the upper room. But Luke says that the disciples actually got into an argument about which one of them was the greatest. And, uh, you know, I, I read that, and I'll be honest, I sit as an armchair quarterback, and I shake my head and say, how could they do such a dumb thing? You know, it's like watching that play in the Super Bowl. How in the world could they pass on second and goal? I, I mean, come on, guys. You know, this isn't rocket science. And how could they get in that argument in that argument, in the upper room, after or right around the time Jesus is saying, love one another, guys, love one another, guys, hey, guys, love one another, and here they are bickering about who's the greatest. And yet, the embarrassing truth is, we're all right there. You know, James asks the question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? 
And he doesn't leave us to guess. He says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and don't have, so you commit murder. And I have a hunch he's talking there about how Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, you've murdered him. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And when I peel all the self-righteousness off of the quarrels I've gotten into in my life, I have to admit It's kind of like when I was three years old and I said, that's mine. No, that's mine. And it was selfishness that got me into the quarrel. And that's what James said. And that's what Jesus is talking about because he knew we're all prone toward selfishness. It's the default mode. And so if we're going to love one another, he hammers this command home. He wants us to remember this one thing because love is not just sort of an optional deal if you're a Christian. You know, oh, well, maybe I'll get around to that one. It's central. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 said, if, if you don't have love, you're just an empty sounding brass and, and a noisy gong. There's no substance. You, you can have all faith to move mountains. If you don't have love, you're nothing. So love is essential. Three things to note here about this love. First of all, Jesus' love is the supreme standard for our love for one another. And he said the same thing when he gave the new commandment in John 13, 34. He says it again here. Just as I have loved you. Whoa, the bar just went up, didn't it? Way up. And of course, Jesus' love for us is seen vividly at the cross, which he alludes to in the very next verse. But on the cross, Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And I have defined Jesus' love as a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. You'll notice that there's not a whole lot of feeling there. There's some. I'll mention that in a moment. But love is at its core a commitment to another person to seek their highest good. And, of course, the highest good for anyone is to come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and once they have, to help them to grow to be like Jesus, to have Christ-likeness in their lives. And so that should be our aim in all our relationships. If this person doesn't know Christ, I need to treat them in such a way, praying that God will give me the opportunity to, to be an example and then to be a verbal witness, to bring them to faith, And then once they are a Christian, how can I help this person grow in Jesus Christ? Now, the point I'm making about love being a commitment is this. If love was a feeling, it's kind of hard to command it. Although the Bible does command certain feelings. Did you know that? Often we hear, well, feelings just are. No, feelings are commanded. For example, rejoice always. That's a feeling. Or be anxious for nothing. That's a feeling. And those are both commands. And so there is a sense. Love, as I said, is a caring commitment. And yeah, we should show that so people feel our care for them in love. But at its heart, sometimes you're not going to feel like loving. What do you do? You obey. You love. You're committed to seek that person's highest good. 
And you do it often by sacrificing yourself for the other person, by denying your selfishness. I am sure that the cross did not feel good for Jesus. If he had acted on his feelings that night in, in Gethsemane, he would have said, guys, we got to hit, hit for the wilderness quick. And he would have fled. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, Hebrews says. He, he knew there was a higher end. He knew that his death would secure our salvation. And so he willingly sacrificed himself for us. And that's illustrated in verse 13, where Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, the one lay down his life for his friends. Now, some critics have said, wait a minute, there is something greater than laying down your life for your friends, namely laying down your life for your enemies. And, of course, the Apostle Paul picks up on that in Romans 5 and says that's exactly what Jesus did because we were all enemies of his when he gave his life on the cross for us. But, uh, and even in another context, Matthew 5, Jesus said, love your enemies. But here, the context is love among friends. And in this context, Jesus is going to demonstrate his love for the disciples the very next day as he goes to the cross for them. And what he's saying is that's the high standard for our love for others. Not that we can ever die as a substitute to save someone. Of course not in terms of eternal salvation. But he's talking about the level of self-sacrifice that he made for us. Uh, It's infinitely high. You probably, like me, every once in a while, will read a story in Reader's Digest or some magazine or something, sometimes on TV see a story about somebody who literally laid down his life to save someone else. Maybe it's a soldier on the battlefield or, or perhaps it's someone who goes into the lake to save a drowning person and ends up drowning himself or somebody who goes into a burning building and saves lives and he is overcome by smoke and dies or that kind of thing. And I've read other stories about it's not the ultimate sacrifice, but it's pretty huge. Somebody giving their own kidney for a stranger. I mean, you know, it'd be one thing to give it for a family member you love, but for a perfect stranger giving their kidney so that person can live. And when I read those stories, I think, wow, would I do that? <laughs> you know, would I would I have that kind of uh, commitment and love? And, you know, you can sit around and speculate about that all day long, and uh, who knows what we would do if we're actually thrust into that kind of a situation. But I'm convinced where we need to practice is on the small daily matters. Because, you know, the Bible says, for example, husbands, love your wives even as Christ Love the church, and then it doesn't leave us vague about what that means. It adds, and gave himself up for her. And as a husband, it's easy to sit around and think, well, yeah, you know, if an intruder broke into my home, sure, I I would give my life to save my wife. Yep, if that ever happens. Chances are that will never happen ever in your life. But here's the test. Do you sacrifice your selfishness? By putting down your newspaper or turning off the TV or getting up from the computer and going in and helping your wife clean up after dinner or watching the kids while she's getting dinner so she doesn't have to deal with the whole thing or helping get the kids bathed and in bed at night and all of that. 
You see, that's where selfishness comes out, isn't it? Is in these little daily things where we want to, well, you know, I worked hard all day and I've got a right to relax and blah, blah, blah. And we make excuses up for ourselves and we become self-serving rather than other-serving. And I think Jesus is talking about being other-serving. Thinking of the needs of others. If I were in their situation, what would I appreciate in coming to their aid? That kind of thing. The second thing we learn here about Jesus' love is that we can only have love for one another if we abide in Christ's love. And you remember last week up in verse 9, John 15, 9, Jesus said, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. And I believe Jesus is now applying that to our relationships for one another. In other words, abiding in Christ's love is the key then to having his love flow through us to those around us, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And of course, those are the two great commandments. We're to love God and love one another. And our love for God is very much tied into his love for us. And so the point here is that God's great love for us, seen in giving Jesus Christ on the cross while we were yet his enemies, that motivates us then to love others. If I've been shown such love, how can I hate others? How can I ignore others or be insensitive to their needs? And as I said, Jesus doesn't just give this command in verse 12 and then the example in verse 13, but he repeats it just a few verses later in verse 17. And you'll notice that in verse 17, it comes right after he talks about bearing fruit that remains. Now, when he gave the new commandment in John 13, he said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I believe what he's saying is fruit bearing in the sense of seeing people come to Jesus Christ is directly tied into our relationships with other Christians. In other words, as people see us loving one another in the body of Christ and in our homes, they're going to go, wow, that's different. What's the source of that? And they'll be drawn to our Savior. Who is the source of it? Sadly, as you know, the church has often failed on this very point. There was even a book out a few years ago, and I never read it. I went on Amazon, found out you can buy it for a penny now. It must be out of print, plus shipping. But, you know, it was called Great Church Fights. <laughs> Isn't that an intriguing title? Great Church Fights. Now, I have a hunch that he had to be very selective, or his book would have been many volumes Because there have been thousands of great church fights. We all know of churches that split over petty squabbles. And on a lesser scale, there have been tens of thousands of conflicts between individual believers in the body of Christ. Where rather than working through their differences, hey, I'm out of here. I don't want to see that person ever again. And they go to church across town or whatever rather than learning to love one another as Jesus commands us. Now, somebody may be thinking, well, yeah, but you don't know how difficult that other person was to love. 
Well, I think Jesus knew. And that leads to the third thing here. And that is that the others that we are commanded to love are imperfect sinners just as we are. It is interesting and more than interesting, I think it's instructive to think through the men that Jesus chose to be apostles. Have you ever thought about it? Especially glaring are two of them. There is Matthew, the tax collector, and there's another guy on the 12 named Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a radical political party that hated Roman rule over Israel, and they were committed to eliminate Roman rule, and they especially hated one class of Jews, tax collectors. Tax collectors had sold their soul to Rome to betray their own people because to get taxes for Rome, they were bilking the Jewish people out of more than they owed, and then they would pocket the rest at the expense of their fellow Jews. And so the zealots were intense on hatred for tax collectors. Now, I don't know whether Jesus chose Matthew first or he chose Simon the zealot first, but to be on the uh, band of apostles. But can you imagine what the first one thought when he chose the second one? <laughs> you know, what is he thinking? You know, if it was Matthew, oh no, Simon the zealot, that guy hates my guts. Or vice versa, if Simon the zealot was first, you're picking a tax collector? You know, you've got to be kidding. And then Jesus told these two very different opposite sinners, love one another. And he still does that, you know. I don't know why Jesus picks some of the people he picks to be a part of his church, to be honest. I, if he had just asked me, I would have said, no, 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 Lord, not that one. Not that one. Let's get somebody who's a little heavier hitter on the team, you know. Let's get somebody else besides that one. And I'm sure if you're honest, you've thought the same. And yet Jesus picks this diverse body of sinners and he sits us all down and says, all right, guys, love one another just as I have loved you. You got it? Any questions? And then he repeats it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm telling you again, guys, this I command you that you love one another. And I don't know that love means you got to become best buddies and like the other person, but it does mean you need to be sacrificing yourself out of commitment to say that person needs to grow in Christ just as I do. And I don't want to do anything to hinder it. And if I can, I want to do everything I can to help that person grow in Christ. So first thing then, friends of Jesus, love one another just as he loved us. Then secondly, verse 14, friends of Jesus, obey his commandments. Jesus adds, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now he's repeating there the thought he just mentioned up in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, Jesus doesn't mean here that obedience somehow earns you 
his friendship. Rather, he's describing what his friends do. His friends obey him. His friends obey him. Or to say it the other way, he isn't friends with rebels. He isn't friends with those who are flagrantly disobedient. His friends obey him. We saw that back in John chapter 14, verse 21 and verse 23, where you'll remember there, he said, you know, if you keep my commandments, number one, I'll reveal myself to you. And number two, the Father and I will come and make our abode with you. We'll live with you, dwell with you. And that's, as I pointed out then, a very human thing. In other words, you don't reveal yourself to people you don't trust. You reveal yourself to people you trust. And Jesus doesn't trust those who are disobedient perpetually to him. So he doesn't reveal himself to them, and they aren't his close friends. There's a startling story in the Gospels. It's in Mark 3 where Jesus was teaching, and the house he was teaching in was so crowded that people couldn't even get in to see him. But his mother and brothers showed up at the door to uh, see him. Frankly, they were afraid for him because he was so busy. They were afraid he was going to go nuts or something. And uh, so finally, the word passes up to the front row, and they say, hey, your mother and brothers are outside. And Jesus responds by saying, who are my mother and my brothers? And I'm sure everybody went, hello, what? What did he just say? And then Jesus answers his own question, and I'm sure that his answer continued to shock them. He says this, Behold my mother and my brothers. And he's pointing to the people that are sitting there drinking in his teaching. And he explains, For whoever does the will of God, or you could say whoever obeys God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And so friends of Jesus obey him, not perfectly, none of us do, but consistently. Do you qualify? A third characteristic of friends of Jesus is that they understand the truths that he has revealed to us from the Father. Verse 15, he says, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Now we need to understand, even though he's elevating the disciples from being mere slaves to being friends, that doesn't eradicate the master-slave relationship. Uh, just a few sentences later, down in verse 20, he implies that they are still slaves And they're they're not greater than their master, who is Jesus. And, in fact, in opening their letters, Paul and James and Peter all call themselves slaves of Christ Jesus. They, They reveled in that. I am a slave of Christ Jesus. And James was Jesus' half-brother, but he still called himself his slave. Now, the point Jesus is making here is a master doesn't have to tell a slave what's going on. A master could call the slave in and say, I want you to fix dinner tomorrow night for 50 guests. And the slave had no right to say, what? What's going on? Why are you having 50 people over here? It's none of your business. I told you to fix dinner for 50 people. Do it. But a friend would explain. A master who was a friend 
and say, you know, you've got to understand there's a special occasion and here's why we're doing it and I appreciate your help and that kind of thing. He, he reveals these things. Now, when Jesus says he's told them all things, in the context, he means all things that it was necessary for them to know at this point. Because when we get down to chapter 16 and verse 12, he pointedly says, I have many more things to tell you, but you can't bear them yet. And then after the resurrection, in Luke 24, we read that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. How all of the Bible talked about him. And so he reveals to us all that we need to know at the level we're at. You don't hit a kindergartner with calculus, you know. You, you, you teach him the basic math. And then as he grows older, you reveal more. And then you reveal more until finally he understands the more complex things. Now we have the Holy Spirit as we've seen and we'll see it again uh, next time. And we have the Spirit-inspired Word And God reveals to us all that we need to know for life and godliness in his word. And, you know, it's interesting. If you're here and maybe you've never been to college, maybe you didn't even graduate from high school, but you know Jesus Christ, the truth is you know more than the most brilliant scientists and philosophers of the world know because you know the living and true God, and they don't. And you know that uh, why God created the earth. And you know God's plan for the ages. It's all revealed in the word of God. And you know how to have your sins forgiven and they don't. And you know your purpose for life and they don't. At least they think they know, but it's the wrong purpose. And you know how you're going to spend eternity with God when you die. And you know how God wants you to conduct yourself wisely in every situation because the Word of God tells us how to live in a wise manner. Think of all that. All of that you know through knowing Christ and the most brilliant minds out there in the world don't have a clue. Isn't that wonderful? So Jesus' friends understand the things that God has revealed in His inspired Word through the Spirit, to us. So we've seen three of the characteristics. Jesus' friends love one another, even as he loved us. Jesus' friends obey his commandments. Jesus' friends understand the things that are revealed to us in uh, the Scriptures. And then finally, friends of Jesus are chosen by him to bear fruit that remains as they depend on him through prayer. And that's verse 16. Let me read it again. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Three things to point out there. First of all, friends of Jesus are chosen by him. Now, probably Jesus is primarily in this context referring to choosing the apostles for their role as apostles. In fact, even John Calvin, who's noted for his views on uh, divine election, says that's the meaning in this context. Uh, At the same time, the Bible is very clear that God chooses us for salvation 
And then he chooses us for the spiritual gifts he gives us. In other words, God is sovereign over the whole process from start to finish. Because if it had been left up to us, there's not a one of us as proud, fallen, rebellious sinners who would have an inclination to choose God. It just doesn't happen unless God begins to draw you to Christ, John 6.44, John 6.65. Unless God opens your blind eyes that Satan is blinded, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 4-6 talks about that. God, who said, light shall shine in the darkness, has shown in our hearts to reveal the glory of Christ, Paul says. That's a God thing. It is a supernatural thing, and none of us would come to that because we are all fast bound in sin and darkness. Now you have to ask, well, why does Jesus bring that up here in this context? And remember, the disciples were just fighting about which of us is the greatest. There's a little bit of a pride issue here going on. And so D.A. Carson points out, he says that often in John's gospel, election is introduced just at the point where human arrogance may need a gentle lesson in humility. And then he adds, this truth is of overwhelming importance if we hope to escape the puffy spiritual arrogance that talks almost as if Jesus has been blessed by our presence, as if we have done him a favor by choosing him. And he goes on to argue that, yes, we're responsible to repent and believe in the gospel. But then he adds, no one in heaven is going to claim I'm here because I did it. Everyone in heaven is going to be humbled to say, I am only here because God was gracious to me, the sinner. That's the point. The Apostle Paul, remember, writing to the Corinthians, and they were having conflicts. And remember, at the heart of conflicts is pride. And if you read that first chapter of 1 Corinthians, there were not many wise among you, brethren, Thanks, Paul. (laughs) Not many of you were noble, you know. Not many of you were high in your standing socially and all of that. And then three times, God has chosen. God has chosen. God has chosen. Paul just hammers that home. Why? His bottom line, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 29, and he's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9, so that no man may boast before God. See, if God had left me in my sin, I'd be in sin. And the fact that God saved me had nothing to do with me or my brilliance or my ability to choose or anything else. It had to do with God. And so all I can say is, God did it. God did it. And then God gets the glory. Then The second thing, friends of Jesus are not just chosen by him, but they're chosen by him for a reason. They're chosen to bear fruit that remains. And I think fruit here in verse 16, in other contexts, it can be broader. But here, I think it primarily refers to converts because of that phrase that remain. In other words, it's talking about people that come to faith. And Jesus has promised, we saw back in John 6, he's not going to lose any that the Father has given him. They're going to remain because God genuinely converted them. 
And the point here for us is this. One of the main reasons God chose you for salvation is that he could use your life to bring others to salvation. And that involves both your example and your words. But that should be your aim. Lord, use me. Use my example. And if I get an opportunity, use my words to help lost people come to know the glory of Jesus. Here's how Paul put it in 2 Timothy 2.10. And you'll notice he brings in again here this idea of election. He says, for this reason I endure all things. He, he was suffering for the sake of those who are chosen, or the Greek word is those who are elect. Why? So that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So Paul is saying God has his chosen out there. They haven't yet come to faith. He didn't know who they were. We never do. But Paul was willing to suffer in prison, to be beaten, to be shipwrecked, all that he went through so that God's elect would come to faith. And that should be our purpose too. And then finally, how do we do it? Well, friends of Jesus... Bear fruit that remains, Jesus says, through prayerful dependence on the Father. Now, you can't see it so well in the English text, but in Greek, in the Greek text, there are two parallel clauses here. And not to get too technical, but the first clause shows why God chose and appointed the disciples to bear fruit that remains. And the second clause shows how that purpose will be fulfilled, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give you. So maybe we could paraphrase it. I chose you and I appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit, namely abiding fruit, which you will do by asking the Father in my name. So prayer is an essential part of evangelism. And I'm all for getting training for how to share your faith. You should be trained and how know how to... If, if you get the opportunity, how to open your mouth and lead someone to the gospel, explain the gospel to them. But we got to remember, leading people to Christ is not ultimately dependent on our having a good method. And it's not ultimately dependent on knowing how to close the deal like a salesman. It's dependent on prayer. Because salvation is a God thing. See, you can talk somebody into praying a prayer. But only God can open blind eyes. Only God can raise dead sinners to life. That kind of thing. And so prayer is a necessity behind evangelism. Someone has said, before you talk to a person about God, talk to God about the person. You know, go to the Lord and say, Lord, this person, even, and you can do this, by the way, while you're talking to him. Oh, Lord, this person is blind. And they don't get it, and I can't speak well. Lord, you work. And you cry out to God for God to work, and God does that. Now, if you've never done so, I would encourage you to do what we've tried to encourage through the 8 to 15 book here, and that is make a list of 8 to 15 people that are in your daily sphere who don't know Christ and begin to pray regularly for those people that God would bring them to salvation. Now, that's a dangerous prayer because he may use you 
as the means of bringing them to salvation. So you got to, in the prayer, be willing. Be willing to be used in that process. I'm in a situation right now where I've been praying for this person for years. And then God gave me an opportunity to have a weekly meeting with that person. And I said to Marla, I'm busy, but I can't turn that down because I've been praying for that person for years and still haven't seen much progress, but at least I'm in a weekly meeting. But make that list and then just be, that list will help you be alert. You prayed for them this morning. There they are. Wow. Maybe today God will turn the conversation into a spiritual one and I'll have an opportunity to bear witness for Christ. So, having said what I've said, would Jesus call you his friend? Four tests. Are you really striving and seeking to love one another, especially make that one another in your home? And then beyond that, your brothers and sisters in this body. Beyond that, your brothers and sisters in this city. Those who know Christ Second test, are you seeking to obey his commandments? Again, none of us do perfect, but is that the bent of your life? And when you fail, do you get up and confess it and seek to obey? Thirdly, are you growing to understand the truths in the word of God, which he has revealed? And then finally, uh, do you know that God chose you and he did it so that you would bear fruit that would remain And that you're depending on God through prayer to bear that fruit. And by the way, if you're wondering, well, um, how do I know if God chose me? Let me give you a very simple answer. Okay? A lot of people stumble over the doctrine of election. And I've been asked this question before. How do I know if I'm chosen? Here's how you know. Have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope for eternal life? And if you did that, guess what? That didn't come from you. God chose you for salvation. He worked that in your heart. And that's why you chose him. And that way he gets all the glory. Let's pray. Father, I pray that if any are here who are not a friend of Jesus, that they would realize they're in big, big, big trouble. Because that means they're they're your enemy. And I hope, Lord, that you would, through my words, show them that they don't have to walk out the door this morning being your enemy because Jesus made the way. Jesus opened the way to salvation through his death on the cross so that all may believe in him and have eternal life. And I pray you would work that miracle of regeneration in their heart, that they would repent and believe in you this morning. And I pray, Lord, as your children, that you would help us all to grow in these four qualities of your friends. And that you would use us to impact this city with the good news of Christ. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.